Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you all today. And if, uh, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking at chapter 7, verse 23, all the way through to chapter 8, verse 2 this morning. And as you turn there, remember what we saw uh, even today, that for the past two months as we've been going through our sermon series on uh, work and the Sabbath, all of our assurances of pardon have actually come from the book of Hebrews. And so this morning, we're going to zoom in on one passage in particular, and we're going to see how this book is so rich with assurance and comfort for us, God's people. And this, this passage is part of an argument that actually extends throughout the book of Hebrews, so it's, it's a little chunk, and it's a chunk that sometimes I think we skip over because some of the concepts are complex and they're, they're foreign to us. It talks about Jesus as a priest, and we don't really have priests uh, in that way unless you're from the Catholic tradition. That might be your only access point to that idea. But when we dive into this and unpack it, we're going to see how real Jesus is to us today and how active he is in our lives and giving us assurance. So let's turn now to Hebrews chapter 7, 23 to 8, 2, and hear now the word of the Lord for you, his people. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us, that we may draw near to you through your son, Jesus. We pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit would open our hearts, God, to hear your word, Lord, and to, to know just how much you love us, Lord, and to know just how great your work of redemption is and how real and alive Christ is for us today. We pray this in his name. Amen. Have you ever felt so deeply haunted by your own sins and past failures that you've doubted whether you're actually a Christian at all? Maybe you keep trying to live the Christian life well, but temptation after temptation pounds away at you and you can't find a place to stand. You can't find shelter from the storms of life. Maybe you come to church week in and week out, you hear about the forgiveness of sins proclaimed from God's word and you believe in that. But you yourself, you just don't feel forgiven. You wonder, am I just a, a poser Christian? Am I disingenuous? Am I not authentic? And your conscience perhaps continues to bring up sins maybe even you committed years ago and that you've already confessed, but they come up again and they destroy your faith and you can barely worship. And if we're honest, I think all of us have probably felt that way at least once and probably many times in our lives. And if we're really honest, Many of us have felt that way this week, maybe even this morning, at this very moment. 
And so the question for us is, is there relief? Is there hope for us when we don't feel forgiven, when we feel so burdened by our guilt? Where can we turn to find hope, to draw near to our God who loves us? And our passage this morning says there is indeed hope, and it shows us where that hope is found. See, as I said, this passage, it actually is part of an argument in Hebrews that starts back in chapter 6 and goes on to chapter 10. And obviously, if we're not going to look at all of that, we'd be here all day. Um, but you could read it this afternoon because it's really rich. And in this passage here, these few verses, the author of Hebrews zooms in on Christ. And it talks about what he's doing right now, that right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and that he is interceding for his people. And so the key truth that we're going to see is that Jesus' intercession does two things. One, it enables him to save his people to the uttermost. And then two, on the other side of the coin, flipping it over, it gives us assurance of our salvation that can withstand no matter how guilty we feel, no matter how tired we are, no matter how many times we fail and struggle, it gives us assurance. And so we're going to see that Jesus' intercession, although it's something we may not often think about, is actually one of the most comforting truths about Christ that the Bible shares with us. So let's turn first then to verses 23 to 25. These verses teach us that first point, that Jesus, because he lives to intercede for us, is able to save his people to the uttermost. And as we get into these verses and look at why that is so, we may need to take a step back first and just ask ourselves, well, what exactly is Jesus' intercession? So as I already kind of alluded to, we don't often think about this idea. We talk a lot about the incarnation at Christmas. We talk about the crucifixion on Good Friday, and we talk about the resurrection on Easter. But there's no Hallmark holiday or church holiday associated with the intercession of Christ. And for some of us, the only thing we associate with that word is it's kind of a fancy and cool Christian word that you use in the coffee shop when you want to sound awesome about your prayer life. You're like, yeah, I've been interceding for people, and, you know, that's cool. But that's actually to miss the richness of what this word is. It has to do with prayer, yes. But in Christ's case, he is seated at God's right hand and he is interceding for us. And so what does that mean? Well, notice that in verse 25, when that word appears, it's connected to this idea of God's people being able to draw near to him. And so whatever it is, Jesus' intercession is the very thing that allows us to approach our holy and loving Father. And this is because through his intercession, Christ is representing and defending his people before God's throne, and he is applying to us the benefits of salvation. See, as the Bible talks about elsewhere, Christ is what is called the mediator between God and man. Remember who we are outside of Christ, which maybe is weighing heavily upon you now. We are broken. We are dead in our sins, and we are unholy. And remember who God is. God is perfect, he is righteous, and he is holy. And so to enter into his presence in our sin would be like dousing ourselves in gasoline and standing next to a bonfire. It would end in our destruction because his holiness cannot stand the presence of sin. And so we need someone through whom we can draw near to our holy father. And so through his intercession, Christ makes it possible for us to draw near to God because he lives to declare that he himself has borne our guilt, that he himself is now applying his righteousness to us and making us able to approach God and find grace and mercy. And Herman Bavink, who is a great Dutch theologian who sports a nice beard, of which I'm quite envious, 
uh, he unpacks Jesus' intercession even further. And that, that quote is for you in the bulletin. So follow along and hear what Bavink says. He says, Christ's intercession is a steadfast, gracious will of Christ to lead all his people to the blessedness of heaven on the basis of his sacrifice. Thus, Christ is our only priest who remains forever, continually covers our sins with his sacrifice, pleads our cause against all the accusations of Satan, the world, and our own hearts, makes our prayers and thanksgivings pleasing to the Father, consistently assures us of free and confident access to the throne of grace, and out of his fullness sends to us all the blessings of grace. Now there's a ton there, and I'm not going to quiz you on it. Um, You don't have to memorize that. But the reason I put that quote in there is for us to see that Christ's intercession is packed with blessings for us. And there's one thing in the middle of what Bavink says that is absolutely critical for us to have in mind as we're defining Christ's intercession. Because as you know, we stand guilty before a holy God. And so the question then is, when we add together God's wrath for sin and his holiness and Christ's intercession for us, it's easy to go wrong in the math and say two plus two equals five instead of four. That is, it's easy to go astray and say that through his intercession, Jesus is somehow persuading God to love people. We can think that God is somehow this fickle Scrooge who needs to be convinced by Jesus before he would ever allow anyone to enter into his presence. And so we think that Jesus is up there and God is launching as many accusations against us as he can and Jesus is talking him down and saying, no, no, it's okay, I've got this. They can draw near to you. But do you see the danger in thinking about God that way? Because if we think about God that way, we lose sight of the fact that he is our loving father. We actually blow apart the unity of the Trinity. We pit the son against the father. And as Cameron has told us many times before, we start to think that Jesus saves us from the father instead of saving us to the father. And if we were actually to think that, we'd we'd be misunderstanding John 3.16, which is the most quoted verse in the Bible. Because remember that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. And so Jesus is not interceding for us to convince God to love us. God loves us, and so he sent Christ to be our intercessor. And so the accusations, they're not coming from God himself. Although he is holy and he does not stand the sight of sin and he will not tolerate it, The one who does the accusing is Satan, whose very name means the accuser. And if you remember from our study in Job, that's exactly what Satan has been doing from the beginning. He enters God's presence, and he points his finger at God's people, and he says, they're not worthy of your love. In the case of Job, he said, Job only likes you because you've given him a cushy life, but if you take that away, this punk will curse you to your face. And so some of us, our own minds and our own hearts, often echo Satan. We feel like, I've cheated on God a thousand times with my sin. I keep betraying him for lesser lovers. And that's what Satan is saying. He's in God's presence and he points his finger at us and he says, they don't deserve you. You who are just and who are holy, your only option is to wipe them out. Otherwise, maybe you're not such a holy God, are you? Did you really say that you can't stand sin, God? And yet, Christ is an intercessor who is seated at God's right hand. He is our advocate. And so when Satan snivels and sneers and accuses God's people, Christ can stand and can proclaim that he himself has borne the punishment and the curse and the wrath that we deserved in our sins. When your own heart echoes Satan's lies and his whispers and accusations, Christ lives to intercede for you to speak a better word over you, even now, 
saying that he himself has paid for your sins and that he himself clothes you in his righteousness, that you can draw near to God. And so, put simply, Christ's intercession, it defeats Satan and it opens up the way for us to draw near to our holy and loving God. And then notice, looking back to the text, what verses 23 and 25 then describe in particular about Christ's intercession. It says it has no end. The word that appears almost most often in this passage is forever. You see, Jesus' high priesthood was foreshadowed by the Old Testament priests. And yet the author of Hebrews here, he points out there was a problem. All of them were subject to death. There was always a regime change. Not all of them were perfect. Not all of them did their job well. And the ones who did do it well, they couldn't make it last. They were like Israel's kings. And yet Jesus, because he lives forever, his intercession is not going anywhere. It's not like we're lost in the wilderness and we're trying to find signal for our cell phone, trying to give someone directions to find us. Christ's intercession for us is a steadfast bridge. It's not going anywhere. We always have access to God to find mercy and grace because Jesus himself lives forever. And if you follow then where the author of Hebrews goes, he says, because of this, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. And this phrase, to the uttermost, it's very important. And it should be the most comforting thing to us because as we've already confessed this morning, sometimes we think to ourselves about places in the world, places whose culture is different from ours, like the Middle East. We look and we say, well, that place has always been chaotic. So what good could come from there? We look to cities or towns that are unlike our own, and we say, you know, that culture, it's just going by the way of the world. God can't do anything now because our politicians are all bankrupt. The church has gone astray. And yet Christ, because he is seated at God's right hand, because he intercedes for his church, there is no place out of his reach. And we go wrong and we underestimate his power when we say that there is a place that he cannot reach with the gospel. And do you realize that you say the same thing about yourself when you say that you've sinned too badly and that he just doesn't understand how badly you are and how badly you've lived, that is. When we say that we've sinned too much, we're actually not just saying something bad about ourselves, we're actually questioning Christ's power to save us. So you're not just being honest and being real with yourself, you're doubting Christ and you're saying he's not who his word says he is. He can save to the uttermost. And so no matter what you think you have done, as sinful as it is, Christ lives to intercede for you and to save you to the uttermost. And then, as if that is not comforting enough, we then turn to verses 26 from chapter 7 all the way on to 8-2. We flip the coin over because we've seen sort of as an objective side that Christ lives to intercede for his people. He has this power to save us to the uttermost. But then not only does his intercession do that, but it gives us personally assurance of that salvation. And this question of assurance, as I was alluding to in the beginning, is the weightiest question, I think, that could ever cross your mind. Because sometimes it just springs upon you, and you don't know where it came from. You'll be at work, and suddenly you realize, man, my devotional life has really stunk recently. And I've been struggling with sin, and I've slipped up more times than I can count. I've been treating my family badly. I've fallen and stumbled in what I've been looking at online. My boyfriend and I have been going and doing things we should not, or my girlfriend and I have been going and doing things we should not. And you start to wonder, can I lose my salvation? Can I do something so bad that God will cease from loving me? Do my struggles, the fact 
that spending more than two minutes in prayer or in the word, does that mean that I'm a poser Christian, that I'm not authentic, that somehow I've just been faking it until I make it and that I'm not making it at all? My struggles mean that I'm falling away. And yet in light of what we've already seen, we have to flip the question around. You see, the question is not, can I lose my salvation? The question is really, can Christ lose the salvation of his people? We've already seen that the answer to that is no, because he lives forever to intercede for us. And if that's not enough, now in these verses, the author of Hebrews goes on and he gives us three more points about the perfection of Christ. Because you see what he's doing is he's turning our gaze from ourselves. He's turning us basically from the spilled milk of our sin. He's saying, don't just weep over that, but rejoice and look and gaze and wonder and worship at the great high priests that you have. And so in verse 26, we see first that Jesus' character is perfect. We see that it is fitting that we should have a high priest like him. And it is fitting not because somehow we deserve him, as so many of us feel. We say, I don't deserve God's love. How does this make any sense? And the point is, it's not supposed to make sense. It's not a transaction. It's grace. It's a gift. It's love. He's not the high priest we deserve, but he's the high priest we need right now. He is the fitting high priest in that he is specially tailored by God himself to minister to you in whatever struggle it is you're facing. And that is because his character is perfect. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. That means he never sinned. He who lived a perfect life. He who endured temptation more than any of us have. Because have you ever noticed when you've been tempted fiercely, it builds and it builds the longer you resist until, unfortunately, many times you fall and then you have the release valve. And you come and you feel broken. But for Christ, he never once fell. So the release valve was never pressed. That button was never pushed. And yet he never sinned. Not once. And that, by the way, is what that next phrase, separated from sinners, means. Because as we look at that, we may start to worry and say, well, was Jesus kind of an OCD germaphobe who is too scared to get in the trenches of real life? Does he want to keep his distance from me because my life is too messy? Is he like so many people in the church who ask how you are and say, I'll pray for you and never actually have coffee and ask the hard questions that we are just begging in our hearts for someone to ask us? No, he's not. Because remember, this is the man who was criticized by the religious zealots of his day for spending time with prostitutes and tax collectors and Roman soldiers and calling them out of the darkness. So he's not distant. He's separate in the sense that he himself knew no sin. And because of that, we then see that he is exalted above the heavens. He is seated at God's right hand in the holy tent, in the perfect place to minister to us. And his perfect character This is assuring to us because think about our own leaders as we're in an election season. It seems like it's every other week that more dirt comes out in the media. And oddly enough, it doesn't really seem to bother anybody anymore, which is kind of crazy to me. But that's beside the point. The point is that with Christ, there is no skeleton in his closet that would ever come out that would disqualify from him. He's not like the Old Testament priests, so many of whom would mess up and disqualify themselves from service in the priesthood and would then lead the people astray. Christ is perfect. And so he is our perfect high priest through whom we draw near to God. And then in verse 27, we see that out of his perfection, he's also the perfect sacrifice for our sins. You see, it's here that the author of Hebrews brings up another problem with the Old Testament priests because they themselves were not perfect. And so when they were offering sacrifices as the religious worship of Israel, they were not only atoning for the sins of the people, but for themselves. 
And because they were people just like you and me, they struggled with sin day in and day out. And so what you had was you had a picture that anticipated what Christ did perfectly. Because it was an imperfect picture, you had imperfect priests offering imperfect sacrifices for imperfect people day in and day out. And there was no end to it. And yet with Christ who is perfect, he offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice once and for all. It means it is finished. When he said that on the, Christ, or on the cross, Christ was not kidding. He wasn't saying that, hey, by the way, if you don't do at least 20 minutes of devotions every morning, it's not finished for you. You're out. Sorry. No, there's nothing more for you to do to make God love you or to atone for your sins. We do those things because they are a gift, because they are the means of grace by which we are brought into our identity in Christ, by which we draw near to the Father. There's nothing more that needs to be added. The sacrifice was perfect, and the blood has been shed, and we have been washed. And then finally, verse 28, and this one I think is the most abstract, but it's actually also the most comforting, because it points us to the perfect promise, or the perfect oath, that stands as the foundation of Jesus' priesthood. You see, the author of Hebrews, he explains how the Old Testament priests were all appointed by the law, which was given by God, it was a good thing, but it appointed the priests in their weakness, as high priests. So what that means is, sort of as we just saw, they had to continuously cleanse themselves of the effects of their sin, but the law itself was powerless to free them from the tyranny of sin. They were appointed in their weakness. The law could not take that away. And yet here we have Christ, who is perfect, who is then appointed not just by the law, but instead by an oath given by God himself as a foundation of his priesthood. And that oath um, if you were to scan back up in your Bibles to verse 21 in chapter 7, this is actually a quote from the Old Testament. It's Psalm 110, verse 4, and it says this. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, that is Jesus, you are a priest forever. So do you see what is happening here? What is happening is that God the Father himself has looked at God the Son, Jesus Christ, and has said, you, I am making you a high priest forever and I'm not going to change my mind. And that's significant because if you ever had someone change their mind on you, whether at work, a boss who said, you're gonna have a job for the next year, I promise, and then two weeks later, you have no job. Or a spouse, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend who has lied to you, what's that done to your trust with that person? Have you felt like you could then rely on them to help you in times of need? See, this oath is so assuring to us because it is God who is perfect saying, I'm not gonna change my mind. I don't care even if your own earthly father has broken you so many times. I am your perfect heavenly father and I do not break my word. Your feelings do not determine Christ's effectiveness, but my word does. And I will not change my mind. He is your priest forever and he is alive to intercede for you so that you can draw near to me. But you may be wondering, how does meditating on Jesus' perfection, his perfect character, his perfect sacrifice, his perfect oath, how do these things, how does that give us assurance? Because these things, maybe they seem like Sunday school truths to you. It's something in the Bible you learn, you're like, wow, that's really cool. I can go talk about that at lunch on Sunday. Then you wake up on Monday and you're like, oh, I don't feel forgiven. Where is my hope? We see these things are of comfort, not just so you can sound theologically astute. They're of comfort because they refer to the high priest you actually have. That's why in verses one and two of chapter eight, that's why they're so important. Look 
at those verses, and the key phrase there is we have such a high priest. You see, everything we just said is actually true about Jesus, who is actually interceding for us today. And so the comfort and the assurance is found in the fact that we are looking to the one who is already at work, even when we forget that he is at work. He's already working and applying redemption to you. He's already putting aside Satan's accusations, and he's speaking a better word over your life. So this phrase, it's kind of like if you, if you saw the new Star Wars movie back in the winter, there was that really a magical line by Han Solo. Harrison Ford just nailed the delivery, and he says to uh, Ray and Finn, the new characters, he says, it's true, all of it, the Force, the Jedi. And when I saw that movie on opening night, the, the cinema just went quiet. Everyone was like, gripped by this, this line. And when they all went home, I heard people saying like, man, we got to go home. We got so much to discuss about this movie. And then it hit me. I was like, movie just shut off. This was a great story, but it's not true. Han Solo actually lied. It's not true at all. But why? Why did that grip us? And I'm sorry if that burst your bubble, but Han Solo, I mean, <laughs> he is that scoundrel, so he's not perfect. He shouldn't have trusted him. But, but the thing is, that moves us because we want to hear that. And that was in Advent, by the way, and I was just, just struck by this. I was like, man, more people are moved by Han Solo than they are by Jesus during the Advent season. What's up with that? But the thing is, that line is what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying, it's true, all of it. Everything I just said about Jesus is actually true. It is the reality that you as a son or daughter of God have for your assurance, for your salvation. And so listen to what Gareth Lee Cockerill says about these verses. He says, thus, and then he quotes the verse, the high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This phrase is a comprehensive description of the present reality available for the faithful. The one who is seated in the place of all authority as the only effective high priest is the eternal son who achieved his position by offering his obedient incarnate life up in death as an effective sacrifice for the sins of humanity. The pastor's burden, that is the author of Hebrews' burden, is for his hearers to realize that this is the high priest whom we have and to appropriate his benefits. Thus, the pastor is guilty of no exaggeration when he says that this high priest is the main point of his message. So do you see that this morning? That this high priest is the one whom you even in your feelings of guilt, even in your shame, this is the high priest that you have so that those feelings do not have the last word, but that Christ in his intercession, who is speaking on your behalf even now, has the last word over your life. You see, when he ascended 2,000 years ago, he wasn't just stepping off the stage and getting out of the way. So often we're like, man, if only I could have seen Jesus like Peter and the disciples could have. That would have been awesome. That was 2,000 years ago. But the thing is, for 2,000 years, get this, for 2,000 years, he's been doing this. He's been interceding for all of his people faithfully, day in and day out, applying the finished work, the work he accomplished on the cross to us. He's not going to stop until he comes back again. So the secret to having assurance is not looking in on ourselves in introspection, but it's looking to Christ in worship and adoration. And so, as we close out, how does this passage then apply to us today? How can it really get at us when we don't feel like a Christian, when our sins won't stop haunting us? Well, there are three points, I think. First, Jesus' intercession, it means that we are free to struggle in our Christian walk. 
I think for so many of us, we need to hear that this morning because when we struggle, we feel like, man, I'm just not doing this right. There's something wrong. If I'm not just measuring up to how I think a Christian should look, then I must not actually be a Christian. But then take a step back and flip it around for a second. Why do you think Jesus would ascend to heaven to intercede for his people until he comes back if we weren't going to struggle, if he didn't know that we would in fact struggle? He is there because he knew that was the perfect place for him to be to bring us all the way home to the Father. And so it is okay to struggle. This isn't a hall pass to sin, of course, but it is a wake-up call. It's a liberating call to know that you can draw near to God through your high priest and you can find grace and mercy in the midst of your struggles. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to sweep that stuff aside. Don't put on a mask, but come with your Bible wide open, recognizing the high priest that you have and draw near to him. And then second, Jesus' intercession, it means that we are free to contemplate him in joy and not drown ourselves in fearful introspection. In my own life, I can't tell you how many times I would sit down and say, all right, I'm going to read my Bible this morning. And within five minutes, I would just suck in on myself like a whirlpool. And I'd start drowning in what, I, what I've kind of come to call in a cheeky way, the sin cinema, where all that would happen is I would just replay all the mistakes I've made in my life. And not just that past week, but things from years ago. And instead of worshiping God, I would literally feel like I was drowning in guilt and in shame. And yet this passage, it tells us that if that's how you feel, if you feel stuck in the sin cinema, shackled there, watching your mistakes being paraded by, in front of your conscience, this passage says, no, that's not the final word. You are free to contemplate Christ. You're free to look to his perfection. You're free to look to him seated in the holy places at God's right hand and know that you have been forgiven even you, even the sins that are weighing heavy on you now, they have been forgiven in Christ. And so this Sabbath day, as you go home, think on Christ, contemplate him. That's just a fancy word for spend time in the word and spend time in prayer, adoring your savior. And then third, Jesus' intercession, it means that we are set free to be who we are in Christ and not just live like we feel in ourselves. This is really connected to the other two, but so often, um, in our culture, authenticity is a, is a chief virtue. And if you're, not doing how, if you're not living how you feel, then you're, not, then you're probably just a poser. I've used that word a couple times. And so often we treat our Christian life like that. We say, man, I don't feel like a Christian, so maybe I shouldn't go to church. Maybe I shouldn't join that Bible study. Maybe I shouldn't spend time in prayer because God won't like it because I'm just feeling tired from raising my family, from working 60 hours a week. I'm feeling tired of my failures and my struggles. And yet what this passage says to us is that your feelings are not what defines your identity, but your identity is defined by the one who is seated at the right hand of God and who speaks a better word over you, who says that he has paid for your sins. They are forgiven. There are stones thrown into the bottom of the ocean, and that he has clothed you in his righteousness, that he has become the bridge for you to draw near to our loving Father. So, so as we close in prayer, just, just take a step back and, and think about prayer for a second. We pray in Jesus' name because he is seated at God's right hand. He bears our prayers up to the Father himself. God is a prayer-hearing God because Christ is our great high priest. So through him, let us now draw near to our Father and ask for grace and for mercy to face the struggles of this week. We may live for his glory as we wait for his return. Oh, Father. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these concepts, God, the idea of Jesus being a great high priest, the idea of him interceding for us, Lord, 
We thank you that this is true, that every last word that you've said here is true. And Lord, I pray that anything I've said, if it is not of your word, may it blow away like chaff in the breeze. But may your word, Lord, may it be a firm foundation for us. And we have the, the confidence, Lord, to stand in Christ before you, to find the mercy and the grace we need, Lord. I pray that those who are broken and battered, Lord, by their guilt and their shame and their sin, Lord, may they not leave this morning without knowing that you love them, Lord, and you love them so much that you sent your son to speak a better word on their behalf. Thank you, Lord, that Satan has been thrown down, that his accusations do not have the final say, but that you have the final say and that you have spoken a better word over us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Amen.